Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. Proof of the Pudding by Robert Sheckley. This is first published in Galaxy, August 1952. That's Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, a place where he was frequently published. And um, I have a uh, little biography I just dug up that he wrote for uh, uh, another magazine called Imagination a couple years later. And I thought I'd read that and give people a sense of uh, Robert Sheckley other than um, my sense, which I think is pretty good, but that's because I've read a lot of Shackley. But here's his actual words about himself. I was born in New York in 1928, but my parents moved soon after to Maplewood, New Jersey. I started to write in the fourth or fifth grade, as near as I can remember, and de- determined at that time to become a freelance writer. My output was largely short plays and poetry with an occasional short story. Through high school, I was an avid, though silent, science fiction fan. My first science fiction story at the age of 14 went to the now-defunct Astonishing Stories. It dealt with the idea that our planets are really gigantic eggs, our sun an incubator, and the mama bird on her way back. <laughs> I, was some, I was surprised to hear from the editor that the, that idea had been used. Someone had gotten there before me. After graduating from high school, I hitchhiked to California, worked a few months, hitchhiked back, and joined the Army. I wrote nothing in the service except for a few letters home. My time was taken up walking guard on the 38th parallel, and later playing guitar in the dance band in Seoul. Discharged in 1948, I enrolled in New York University and started to write again, this time nothing but short stories. Three years later, I graduated with a wife whom I had met in the <laughs> writing class by Erwin Shaw, a trunk full of stories and moderately high hopes. After a few months of writing, I still had the wife and the trunk full of stories. I took a job in, the air, in an aircraft plant as an assistant metallurgist. I'd almost decided that science fiction wasn't for me when the great day came, my first sale to imagination. That's the magazine we're reading it from. Needless to say, I felt 300 feet tall that day. Perversely enough, I wrote very little in the next few months, but after another sale, I quit the aircraft business to devote full-time to freelancing. That was almost two years ago. Since then, I've made about 60 sales to most of the science fiction magazines, plus sales to Collier's, Esquire, and Today's Woman. Also sold 15 television scripts, uh, by by and large, freelancing is as pl- pleasant as I had hoped it would be, and I expect it to s- I expect to stay at it. Uh, Robert Checkley. So he uh, he did stay at it. He um, he wrote fairly consistently for many years and has a huge output. Not that many novels, but a lot of short stories and uh, quite a few adaptations. I was just looking at a Soviet adaptation of uh, one of his short stories. I think Sheckley is a is a delightful writer, a terrific mm-hmm. writer. He he writes with uh, a light touch of humor, regardless of whether or not there's serious uh, thematic concern mm-hmm. in the texts. Um, and so, as a brand name, not necessarily established. In fact, not established in 1952 when this story was written. Mm-hmm. But for people coming to the story from 
his future, our present. Mm -hmm. um, seeing Sheckley, it's a brand name that it sort of makes you think that, ah, this might be funny. Mm -hmm. And uh, the nature of humor in this story, to the extent that it is humorous, is itself, I think, part of the the nature of why we read his stories, because mm -hmm. there's something deeper that we need to ask about. But I, I do want to say, um, I have something to add to his biography that I'm guessing has never been recorded anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So it's, a, uh, it's an exclusive for you, Jesse, and <laughs> anyone who's listening to us. When my son was about, uh, well, I'd say seven, uh, maybe six, so this was 1967, 1977 or 1976, I arranged, as a, then a professor in the English department at the University of Michigan, I arranged to have Bob Sheckley come and give a talk on our campus. Hmm. And uh, he came and had dinner at our house. Now, uh, because of boxing and having done some relatively heavy labor, like bulldozing, um, as a, uh, b before he settled into being a refined writer, um, he had a broken nose, a permanently broken nose. It didn't look that way. It stood up straight, but all you had to do was push it and it, it flapped right wow. over. <laughs> I didn't know that. Nobody I knew knew that. And then we were all at table. And the dinner is over and my son, never shy, I looked over at our guest and said, uh, Mr. Sheckley, do you know any tricks? <laughs> and Bob leaned over to him, pushed his face into his and said, David, can you do this? And his whole nose flipped over to this underneath his underneath his eye, and they went. Aah! And uh, <laughs> then the two of them had a wonderful laugh together. And it seems to me that there's something paradigmatic there about the kind of man that Bob Sheckley was. Mm -hmm. He could be graceful and and rough. He could be scary and uplifting. He could talk to adults and he could delight children. Mm -hmm. So when you read a Bob Sheckley novel or short story, I don't think you wind up saying, ah, yes, ponderous, this is <laughs> substance. But rather you say, hey, that was really neat. Mm -hmm. And you may disagree with me, Jesse, but I think that's also true of this story, Proof of the Pudding. Yep. I, uh, I, I will take exception to one thing. There is a, he actually has the ability to do straight up tender serious stories. There's one story he did uh, called uh, "Beneath Still Waters" um, that is just it's just designed to make you cry. There's n no comedy element to it at all. It's about um, a man and his robot, and uh, the robot lives on after the man dies. It's just beautiful. Uh, I had a friend of mine narrate it for the podcast, and at the end, uh, she's she's crying real tears as she's reading it. It's amazing, um, but but that's not his normal mode. His normal mode is sort of uh, humorous and philosophical at the same time, and that, that is a very rare comedy combination. Uh, it's very hard to compare him to other authors. He's kind of like a, a little bit like Philip K. Dick. He's a little bit like Douglas Adams, but he's really his own thing. And he and is. that's uh, this is a good example of it. It's not the funniest you, you'll find, 
but it does have that philosophical element to it, and I think uh, it's always worth reading Shackley. Well, let's do it. Uh, the, let me read the beginning of the story and mm-hmm. then uh, sort of give a sense of what comes after. Mm-hmm. It's too long, unfortunately, to read uh, on this. this yeah, it's discussion. about 19 minutes of reading. Yeah. His arms were very tired, but he lifted the chisel and mallet again. He was almost through. Only a few more letters and the inscription cut deeply into the tough granite would be finished. He rounded out the last period and straightened up, dropping his tools carelessly to the floor of the cave. Proudly, he wiped the perspiration from his dirty, stubbled face and read what he had written. I rose from the slime of the planet. Naked and defenseless, I fashioned tools. I built and demolished, created and destroyed. I created a thing greater than myself that destroyed me. My name is man, and this is my last work. He smiled. What he had written was good. Not literary enough, perhaps, but a fitting tribute to the human race, written by the last man. He glanced at the tools at his feet. Having no further use for them, he dissolved them and hungry from his long work, squatted in the rubble of the cave and created a dinner. The story proceeds to have him create a table, dinner, chairs, and he ponders whether or not leaving this inscription in the cave would be of any use to any aliens that might eventually come down to the earth, an earth that has been utterly destroyed. Uh, Everything, no plant, no animal, no human exists anymore because a war had begun which involved radiological, biological, uh, and uh, ordinary explosive uh, ordnance. Nothing was left alive except this fellow who had foreseen it coming went AWOL. He was a cruiser captain, space cruiser, and hid on the far side of the moon, the dark side of the moon, waited long enough, came back, and he was alone. As he's sitting there having his dinner and thinking about the demise of the human race and whether or not this inscription is of any use whatsoever, among other things, he recalls having discovered when he came back down to Earth his superpower, his ability to create things, things that he knew well he could create in great detail, things that he knew only vaguely he could create only vaguely, but when he'd go to sleep and wake up in the morning, they persisted. Uh, He somehow had gotten the ability to to create and to destroy. Sitting there wondering whether or not all of his work, like mankind's work, was futile, he hears a voice. And son of a gun, in walks a girl. Now, of course, this is 1952, and by girl, what they really mean is a sexy young woman. And she comes in and starts engaging our fellow in conversation. He wonders whether or not she's just a creation of his subconscious, because he certainly wants companionship and particularly female consciousness. She says, no, no, I'm real. I I was uh, a stowaway on your ship. In fact, I probably died because there was it was frozen and there was there was no heating. There was no oxygen in the hold. But, you know, I came back. I was probably suspended and I came back and I thawed out. And uh, while you've been doing what you've been doing, I've been thawing. And here I am. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
So they have a little debate back and forth. It's very cute. Um, it really shows the assumed anti-feminism of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't take much exception to it, except this, this young woman takes no guff from our guy. Uh, when he says at one point, well, you know, uh, maybe we could decide to carry on meaning by implication, well, now that there's a man and a woman, we could try to restart the human race. She says, well, later, let's see what may happen. Um, And the real issue is if you can create things with your mind, which after all is what we do when we decide that we found a lover or we are members of a democracy, when you can find things with your mind How do you know what's real and what is just your seeing it? Um, In the course of their discussion about what is and isn't real, um, he asks her her name and she says, Joan. And but she wants him to believe her. He wants she wants him or so she says to believe he's real. Of course, he would want her to want him to believe he's real if he created her, right? And the story makes those those twists comically clear. So here's how the story ends. He stared at her for a long moment, felt her warm arms around his neck, listened to her breathing. He could smell the fragrance of her skin and hair, the unique essence of an individual. Slowly he said, I believe you. I love you. What? What is your name? She thought for a moment, Joan. Strange, she said. I always dreamed of a girl named Joan. What's your last name? She kissed him. Overhead, the swallows he had created, his swallows, wheeled in wide circles above the lagoon. His fish darted aimlessly to and fro, and his city stretched proud and beautiful to the edge of the twisted lava mountains. You didn't tell me your last name, he said. Oh, that. A girl's maiden name never matters. She always takes her husband's. That's an evasion. She smiled. It is, isn't it? <laughs> um, so I, I think of it, it's, it's, it, 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 it seems like it's a science fiction story that it immediately becomes... I mean, actually, it starts off as, as a, a weird fantasy, then it becomes a science fiction story... And then it's a philosophical story. Um, and then we've got this a very ambiguous ending. Um, so it, it, it doesn't really fit in any particular genre other than it's a philosophical story, right? It's, it's a metaphor, <laughs> or a bunch of metaphors um, for the human condition, um, many uh, ideas about how and why and what we're doing here. <laughs> Um, so, um, I, I went back to the title, Proof of the Pudding. There's no pudding in this story. There is some ice cream. There's some hamburger. Um, he talks about, uh, the creation of his food. And when he doesn't think of a particular food to create, he creates, uh, this particular dinner. Um, perhaps it's his favorite or perhaps not. There are, there's a. Red Dwarf uh, episode uh, called Better Than Life. It's about a technology that reads your deep subconscious and gives you uh, a virtual reality experience of what exactly you want. And in that uh, show, 
there's a character who hates himself. <laughs> and so mm. he uh, ends up giving himself punishment and pain. Um, here, his, his uh, default dinner seems something he likes. Um, and the default girl, if she is a creation of his mind, uh, of, his, uh, of his subconscious, is pretty nice. So um, there's, a, there's a lot going on. But I just I want to go back to that title again, Proof of the Pudding. So the uh, the full phrase of that title is, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. It's It changes a little bit. Uh, people take it up and use it for what it is. But essentially what it means is the test of the thing is in the consuming of that thing. Or the test of the thing is in the using of that thing. Um, uh, proof is like the word test. It's also a bit like evidence and the pudding can be, um, it's actually, it's a very old phrase and it's probably more like sausage (laughs) than what we think of as pudding today. But, uh, if you're grinding up, uh, meat from a, an animal and putting it in its own intestine and drying it out and smoking it and making sure it's, it's going to be good to eat in the winter time, somebody's going to have to eat that thing. (laughs) And whether it is a good sausage or a bad sausage, it's told by how it tastes and whether it makes you sick or not. So here he is uh, thinking she's an illusory girl. She gives sort of evidence that proves that she might be. And she also gives evidence that um, seems to be contrary when she suggests he make a woman. Um, If he's so good at making women, why don't you make one? He tries, and the thing that he creates is very poor. It doesn't look like a woman properly. There's things wrong with it. It doesn't have its own mind. And uh, so he he disappears it. Um, So that seems to be in her favor. But in his favor of him thinking that she is a creation of his, she has to think about what her name is. Or maybe she has to think about what name to give herself. And the fact that she doesn't want to give a last name, or maybe she's making another point about her last name. These are all uh, things that sort of balance us back and forth as to whether he's right about him being kind of a quasi-solipsist, or whether she's right about what's going actually on in this very strange and very dubitable world. And I think that it's starting with that great uh, chiseling, (laughs) chiseling where he has created the tools um, and then used a surface that he did not create, the granite face, uh, as a kind of a compromise between when he dies, will this thing still be around? That's an interesting <laughs> kind of compromise that I think we make in, in terms of understanding what what's going on and whether we have for full control of our own destinies on this planet. And And then the proof in the eating here is him kissing her, or her kissing him, and her being warm, with warm arms, and having her own mind, and not being a generic woman, but a specific woman. These are all the sort of the balance back and forth. And ultimately, it ends, I think, on a fairly happy note, but still ambiguous. And, mm-hmm. and that's very Robert Sheckley. I agree. I, I like the fact that you're starting with... Uh with the title, the title opens up um, a couple of things for me. 
in addition to your observations. Uh, proof of the pudding, as you say, is in the eating. Uh, proof is cognate with, with probe, um, or in, and in fact, the Spanish word for test is fueba. So the, the proof of the pudding is, as you said, the test, and is, is in the eating, uh, it's in its use. Mm-hmm. And as you point out, it's an old expression. It's not chocolate pudding. <laughs> you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. not these modern concoctions. It's much more, as you, you called it, sausage. It's what we would today call blood, blood pudding. Mm-hmm. And um, it's important to me that it be blood pudding uh, for two reasons. One, it's not dessert. No. It is, in fact, the main thing. The second is blood has important, important symbolic resonances. If we read this story with my kind of perversity, we will notice <laughs> that it begins in a cave. Mm-hmm. And there is a resurrection coming out of the cave. I, I believe three days is mentioned as well. <laughs> exactly. Three days. Just like JC's time in the cave. Mm-hmm. We will notice that he has been working for six days mm-hmm. until she comes along. And then, why well, I guess on the seventh, he rested. We, we, we find one reference after another to, to biblical stories. And at one point he says, well, you know, I'm not God. Well, no. When Jesus was holy man, the one who could be crucified, he wasn't God, although he was the same as God. Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions that's being raised here is not simply, is what I see in the world what I project into the world? Is it simply a reflex of my imagination, but is the world simply the reflex of some other imagination? Mm -hmm. Some great thing that might, for example, come down and hatch the eggs that are the planets (laughs) to tie this in with some other Sheckley themes. He's calling into question not just our perceptions, but the very nature of the world, which is why that so-called compromise, he called it a compromise, mm-hmm. um, he chisels uh, an inscription in the, on the wall of the tomb, the, the cave. Um, I think it was tomb because Jesus mm-hmm. was entombed. Yeah. Um, he chisels an inscription in the granite that he found there, mm-hmm. although he's willing to use tools that he created, hoping, hoping that it might persist. But in fact, if he weren't what you call nicely a quasi solipsist, but a true solipsist, he would realize that anything he found there was also equally simply a projection of his own self, and he wouldn't be trying that. So our guy, already, before he sees the girl, is in doubt about the nature of the reality of the things that he encounters, even though he likes the taste of those hamburgers he keeps making up. Now, that kind of fundamental doubt, is it there or do I just think it's there? That's the kind of doubt that I believe, well, I I don't know what children are like these days. When I was a kid, you know, 8, 10, 12, 14, perhaps, well, maybe it was done by 14. I spent endless, endless time in conversation with friends about questions like, I see this color. 
and I call it green. <laughs> you see this color, and you call it green. But how do we know we're seeing the same color? Mm-hmm. Right? This, this question for which there is no fundamental answer to which we can directly uh, avail ourselves of which we can directly avail ourselves, that kind of fundamental question, what is the nature of reality? Yes, it hurts when I touch it, uh, but does that mean it was really hard? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that I think engages us, and frankly, speaking from my no longer childish age, um, I think that we can never answer it. That, in right. fact, we come to a point where we simply have to say, you know... If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, and you know, it's a duck. If she loves me, seems to love me, um, wants, it feels warm, she's as good for me as the hamburger. And I find it's very interesting. This is a sign of, of Sheckley's real sensitivity. Whether he did this intentionally or it just happened, it's still very important to go back to that ending that I read. It begins with, slowly he said, I believe you. I love you. What? What is your name? That word love, that's the first time that word occurs in the story. Mm-hmm. And it comes, that verb, immediately after the verb believe. Mm-hmm. And so what everyone may say about the ontological implications of this story, the psychological implications are clear. If you don't believe in someone, you don't love them. If you do believe in them, then you may. And that's really quite humane. Brings me back to mm-hmm. Beneath Still Waters. Um, she, says, um, <laughs> she says, listen to me, I'm real. She slipped her arms around his neck. I've always been real. I always will be real. You want proof? Well, I know I'm real. So, so do you. What more can you ask? And and you can sort of retitle this story. Uh, you can say the proof of the life is in the living, right? Whether they end up having 16 babies or he creates 16 babies for them or whatever, the only way to actually test any of this is just to get on with it, right? <laughs> and that's why, you know, I was the same way as you, uh, having these questions and doubts and i still am but these questions and doubts are sort of a side story uh oh yes a reminder of those things because you you have to get on with your life <laughs> and you know it you know we both know that in the in the root sense of the word comedy mm-hmm. it it means a coming together of the social structure that whatever had been rent is now re-knit uh comic a comic ending is not a comedy is not in the ancient Greek sense. It's not something that makes you laugh and giggle. It's not jokes. It is something that gives you a sense of ah, yes, mm-hmm. it all works out. There is reason for hope. If tragedies reveal the mortality that marks us, comedies let us know that between cradle and grave. We can have much joy in life. Mm-hmm. This story begins with grave, and it ends by saying, maybe not. Maybe there's joy. Sheckley really gives us a gift. 
He does. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, in rereading it, it had been a long time since I reread it, I didn't remember what her name would be. And I was thinking, you know, the normal name to give her would not be Joan. It would be Eve. Right? Mm-hmm. He is never given a name in the whole story. We know he's a captain. We know that he is a man. We know that he is calling himself mankind. And that inscription that he re- writes for not just himself, but for humanity, is mm-hmm. basically the description of the recapitulation of what they're about to do. I rose from the slime of the planet, naked and defenseless. He's not talking about himself personally. He's talking about our, us as a species. I fashioned mm-hmm. tools. I built and demolished, created and destroyed. I created a thing greater than myself that destroyed me. That'll come to us one day, right? My name is man. And this is my last work. And then when he destroys that, when he's no longer alone, and he destroys the works that he's wrought upon the wall of the cave, he says, out there is a junkyard planet, right? That's evidence enough of what we did. You don't need this little speech from me. This epitaph is an explanation for what we see outside, but we figure that out anyways. And so, in going again, the typical response would be, you know, she's Eve, he's Adam. Uh, We've seen this story before in science fiction. It's very common. (laughs) And Sheckley doesn't make that mistake, you know. He doesn't say, I'm Eve. (laughs) He doesn't call her Eve. He makes a choice. Joan is not an Eve. There's Joan of Arc. I don't think that's her. I think she's a regular woman named Joan. You know, but, I'm going to push push that just a little mm-hmm. bit further. Um, Sheckley was a Brooklyn boy like me. Um, and I think he may have learned some things at Hebrew school. Um, Eve comes from the Hebrew verb meaning to breathe. When Eve is named, she is named in distinction from all of the other things in the garden that don't breathe, like plants that don't appear to breathe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so her name is Breath. She is what creates life. Joan is, back through Latin and Greek, comes from the Hebrew, which is, uh, it's a Hebrew, it's the form of John, mm-hmm. which means Yahweh is gracious, at this moment where he, our hero, notices the destruction and that it speaks for itself, he is able to realize that he is released from the necessity of communicating because he is now given the chance simply to live. Mm-hmm. God is gracious. It may be an accident here, but I have a feeling that Bob Sheckley wanted us to focus on her first name in part, making that clear by evading giving her a, quote, maiden name. Yeah. Um, and she takes, she says, uh, the woman takes the name of her husband. Um, her husband may be God. Mr. Indeed. God. Mrs. God. I, I love the fact that after he finishes creating this this work, after six days, he, he's, he takes his rest, he makes a dinner, 
Um, but I also get the sense that he's suicidal, right? That, I mean, it ends. My name is work. My name is man, and this is my last work. He's not. He's not planning on doing anything after this. But then into the cave comes this girl, and she says, "I heard the noise of you chiseling, and it mm-hmm. it brought me to you." And that is, it's wonderful. Because it's so ambiguous, but of course that's also what happens in life, you know? You're singing at the karaoke bar, and the girl looks over (laughs) and says, Hey, that guy's got a voice, and he's got the moves. I like this guy. He's making the noise. So... There's a there's a lot to value here. It It isn't quite a science fiction story. It's not a fantasy story, exactly. Um... It, it's a philosophical it's not a religious story. allegory. No, you're right. It's, it's a philosophical tale, and that's and a, that's and a, great. And a, and about such such stories, there's always more to say. Mm-hmm. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.